Community without Christ is a community in crisis. In a time when the world was falling apart, the church was still being formed, and aggressive persecution was underway. Another evil was taking place. False teachers were bringing in heresy. Jude reminds the believers that God in the past had blessed others, but when they became unbelieving, disobedient, or wicked, they lost their blessings. The challenge for us is to remain faithful to the God of our salvation and to remember that he is able to keep us from stumbling. So that's what we'll be looking at as we go into the book of Jude. And then I had to, yesterday, the last minute, call him and ask him for a second week because I was supposed to do this in one week. But there's just too much in this little book. Uh, One short chapter, but a lot to say. 25 verses, 613 words, but much to learn. Today we do see a world in crisis. Our country is in crisis. Our political process proves that point, what we're going through right now. Our political process itself is in crisis. And you know what? The political process is not going to fix the problems that we have as a country or the problems that we see around the world. A community without God has never survived. Adam and Eve went from a perfect uh, culture or, or, or place to a fallen world. The time of Noah, the world had gone so far that uh, man had to be rescued and destroyed. Israel, with God, rose to power and prominence. Without God, they fell and they were dispersed. Greece and Rome, while really not having anything to do with God, they fell because they did not have God, even though they were world powers and they were supposed to have all knowledge and all the things together. The Greeks and the Romans didn't survive. In modern times, the British Empire, and now America. With God, we were mighty nations. Without God, we're a culture in crisis. And even a community of believers like us, a church, without Christ, we would never surprise. We would never survive. And that is what Jude is writing about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this epistle, this letter that was written to the church early in its history, Lord, and that we are still gleaning from it today and that we are learning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Rome was still in control. They had allowed the Jewish religion to maintain because it maintained a social or culture order. But Christianity was overtaking them in prominence. They were actually turning the world upside down as they were going about planting churches everywhere they went. Nero was reaching out against the church, against Christians. Peter and Paul were in prison or even dead at this time. And the Christians were being persecuted and killed wherever they were found. And at the same time, false teachers were coming into the church, bringing in apostasy and things to bring the church down. So Jude writes to the believers, the young church, He wrote a lot like Peter, especially 2 Peter, which you studied last week. Words of warning, words of encouragement that they should contend for the faith. And that's the main idea. Defend the faith against false teachers. Strengthen yourself and be merciful to those who are weak. 
So we as a body of believers, as a community, are to gather together, study his word, encourage one another, and help each other, be, God bless you, and become more, be, and become more um, fruitful in the way that we live our lives. So let's look at it right from the beginning. Let's read the first 11 verses. I'll read them to you. Follow along. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner of these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring again him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So verse 1, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James. I like the fact that he doesn't say Jesus' brother. He doesn't try to use that as some type of authority, but he just says a servant of of the Lord. A bondservant is the word that he uses, doulos. It means slave, literally one who gives himself up to another's will, and he's devoted to that other person even and disregards his own self-interests. And then he says three interesting words. You are called, sanctified, and preserved. Called, the word also means election, divinely selected. We know that Israel was chosen by God. God chose them. We know that we saints are chosen. In Romans chapter 8, we read these verses in verse 29 and 31. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. And then in Ephesians, the very first few verses. We read these. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So we are clearly chosen. It's certainly election is certainly taught throughout the Bible. Uh, For those of you who like to dig into those deep and heady things, you can read Romans chapter 9. And you can buy lots of books on the theology of election. And, of course, this is one of those areas that sometimes can divide the church because some people get one viewpoint versus another, going one extreme of saying that God elects us, he chooses it, it's all his picking, and so there's no free will, there's no moral choice for us to make. Therefore, it's his game, and he gets to, he gets to play with the way he wants. And that's one point of view um, um, that would be part of the Reformed theology or Calvinism, those types of things. But we're not going to go into that tonight. You can do that on your own. If you want to study about it, I'm sure there's people who will even meet with you and debate it, um, taking one side or the other. The next word he used was sanctified. To make, and I have something coming up that I think you'll like about that, something that I thought was, was pretty, um, pretty exciting. Uh, to make sanctified, to make holy or concentrated, to set apart. And once we become Christians, the, the process of sanctification begins in our life. And we should be moving towards holiness and towards service. And you should see yourself growing in the things that you want to do. You want to reach out for him. You want to do things for him. Some people say, I can't teach. I can't sing. I can't do this. No, but you can come early and help set up tables. Or you can stay late and help stack chairs. There's lots of things for us to do to help one another in service. But we're all being sanctified or set apart. And then we're all preserved, which is to guard from the loss of injury. Uh, it's to keep an eye on one's property. Our, we are preserved. The Lord has his eyes on us. In Jesus Christ, we are his property. Haven't we been redeemed? So we're his. So if we were his sheep or his saints, he's going to keep his eye on us and he's going to be aware if anything starts to happen to us. So we are preserved. Then the remaining of his salutation, he uses three more words, mercy, peace, and love. Mercy, divine kindness in the form of forgiveness for our sins. Peace, a quietness or a rest. Security and safety. Uh, For Christians, it's a tranquil state of mind. It's the assurance that we have that we're in in a state of salvation through Christ. But I like the the thing of peace, quietness of rest. It implies security and safety. Um, We took one of my recliners down from the house up here to uh, the house, Mary's dad's house down in in Whittier where we're taking care of her dad. And we gave it to him. This is his chair. And he loves that chair. And I'll tell you, when he's in that chair, he feels safe. Because he can go to sleep in about a minute and a half. And uh, so I thought about that as I was writing this. I said, when he's in that chair, knowing that we're in the home with him, he's safe. And because he's safe, he has peace and the quietness. And uh, we wake him up when he snores too loud. But it's a, it's a good thing. And then love. Jude uses the word agape. A love of the highest form. Uh, be multiplied. Continue to increase and abound. That's what agape love is. It continues. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, a term of endearment, addressing his hearers as ones that he cares about, as I do you. He says, I'm diligent to write to you. I was going to write you a letter about your salvation, to rejoice in your salvation. 
But then something came up, and I needed to write you, to exhort you, to, to bring to your attention some other things. I need you to contend for the faith. I need you to fight for it. I need you to be willing to go to battle for the gospel. The simple good news that God loves you, I want you to stay with it. I don't want you to make it complicated. I don't want others to come in your midst and make it complicated. Jesus loves you, and that's enough. You know, Christianity spread so fast. Churches were planted um, as the gospel went out. God sent his son. My sins are gone. And when people started talking about it, the next thing you know, two or three gathered together. The next thing you know, you had a church. Most of the churches were planted by disciples or disciples of disciples or people who were going out. And when they planted the church, the the model was they left and they went to the next city to plant another church. And they turned around and they said, hey, Paul, you look like a healthy guy. You've been to all the meetings since we started two weeks ago. You're in charge. And they would take off. okay, and they would leave a local in charge. No theological degree, no Ph.D. after his name. Just, hey. William, you look sharp. Bill, you look sharp. You guys, you guys have been here. You understand what we've been doing here? Just preach the gospel. Here's the Old Testament, and, and these are your scriptures. And they would take off. So at the East Coast Pastors Conference two weeks ago, Joe Foch, who was the, the host of it, it was at his church, told of listening to a recording of Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg has a big church in, uh, I think it's in the Midwest somewhere, St. Louis. And he was speaking, huh? Ohio's Parkside somewhere. But anyhow, he was, he was speaking to a group of Reformed pastors. And he himself is a Reformed pastor. And he has spoken at Calvary Chapel. He's a great, uh, great teacher. If you want to listen to him, it's 1030 on K-Wave in the mornings. Great teacher. I've listened to him several times. But he was speaking to these Reformed um, pastors. And this is what he said. He told them that he had spoken at a couple Calvary Chapel conferences. And they broke off into laughter. Okay. And he told them not to laugh. He calmed them down and said, don't laugh. He says, all that you need to be a Calvary pastor is a pair of jeans and an open Bible. (laughs) Then he also said, Calvary Chapel is changing the world while we are sitting around tied up in our theological underwear. Because that was what they were doing in all of their debates. Well, I take take offense at uh, Alistair's uh, thing that says you needed jeans and an open Bible. You need jeans, an open Bible, and a pastor's heart. And I would say for you as a Calvary Chapel, you need the love of the brotherhood. So those are, that was an, ex- an exciting thing. I, I, I kind of chuckled when I heard that. It says in verse 4 that certain men, so he was pointing out these men, for they have crept in unnoticed. They've slept in, these false teachers. They come in carrying their scrolls, Old Testament scrolls, or they come in with their Bible, or they have the jargon that we speak in Christian circles. They talk about being redeemed or being sanctified or all those different things. But they want to change the truth of the gospel. And here he specifically says into lewdness. And uh, the word lewdness has to do with lasciviousness. It was to make it very wanton sexually. And so it was a very horrible thing that they were doing. He also calls them dreamers there. And that word was really a difficult one to get a handle on. But when you look at the root word in the Greek, it's to be filled with wonder of a sensual image. To be thinking about and wondering about sensual images. And it's sad to say that this is true today. People come to, into churches and fellowships looking at how they can deceive. Many do it for money. 
Others do it just for self-interest, just to get the place of being up front and in the pulpit or to be on the radio or, or become known. Much of the New Testament is written to warn us about false teachers. Jesus had warned that, they would, that after he was gone, they would come. And Jude, jumping down to verse 17, says this, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last days who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. And I think in Second Peter, you even had some words about that, some warnings. Peter wrote this, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly be, uh, bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who, brought, who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, and their destruction does not slumber. Paul writes to the Colossians, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You know, Paul was a Pharisee, a lawyer, well-versed in the law, but he received grace, and he discovered how great that was, and he wrote the book of Romans. And when he wrote Romans, he said, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And that's what he kept his message to, the simple things of the grace of God. He said to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But many of the false teachers and false teachers of today come into the church, and they start to tell us things that make us feel good. We can be rich, we can be prosperous, we can have this, we can do that. And they don't just stick with the word, and so that's what we have to be careful of. In four, in four the second part of chapter, verse 4, there's no chapters in Jude, it's just verse 4. But these false teachers were saying you could live in lewdness in the New King James, uh, lasciviousness in the King James in the New American Standard, unbridled lust of a sensual desire. And, you know, one of the things that has happened recently in the church, I haven't seen it too much um, this year, but last year um, there was a lot of advertising, a lot of marketing for Christians to get together for sexual enrichment talks, provocative talks, how, what the Bible says about this or about that. And that was a shame to be using that to lure people into the church because it just doesn't seem that that should be done. I think there's probably a place for that in the church, but I don't think it's a place to bring people into the church. But that's what Luke was talking about, that that was the desire. Here in Jude, it was similar to what Paul had exhorted the Romans and the Corinthians should we sin more that grace may abound? God forbid. You remember that Paul was writing to the church saying, you know, some are going through the church saying, you know, you've got so much grace from God. He loves you so much. Just go ahead and sin. And the more that you sin, the greater the sinner you are, the greater grace that you'll have. Well, that's just a bad theology. That's just bad. But that's what was happening. So in a few verses, Jude will tell us what these false teachers are like. But first, a warning to the beloved. Verses 5 to 7, let's look at those again. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those 
who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So he gives us three lessons from history. Three examples. Interesting how the New Testament writers, Peter and Jude in particular, keep saying they want to remind us. They're taking the approach, you should know. You should know your Bible well enough that I'm here tonight to remind you of these things. That's what Jude is saying. I want to remind you. Peter said, I know you already know this, but I'm going to say it again. I'm going to remind you. I want to remind you. So first, he says, God saved Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. You all know the story. First, he saved them from the plagues. The plagues affected the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. They crossed the Red Sea. The the water parted for them. But then God destroyed Pharaoh's army. Nothing but open spaces in front of them. Great walk to the promised land. But that whole generation died in the wilderness. They did not inherit the promised land. These are people who were saved by the hand of God, but they did not get to enter the promised land because of unbelief. The second example he talks about are the angels that left their proper domain, the the place that they were. Satan and his angels were created by God to worship God and to be there. But Satan rebelled, and it's in Isaiah 14. Um, He spoke very pridefully in this. I'll read it to you. He rebelled against God by saying, I will. He lifted himself up and he wanted to be prideful. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Now, you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The Lord continues, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. The angels that were cast out with him and Satan were in a place of prominence. They were in a place of great worship. But they left that place and now they're waiting for judgment. The third one was the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, these were great cities of wealth. We think of them as bad cities because that's what we think about with the story of Lot. Lot being called out of them and the men coming in to be with the daughters and the things that were going on. The angels going down and destroying them. That's kind of the story we remember. But remember when Abraham said to Lot, we're too big. Our shepherds are fighting. You go one way, I'll go the other. And they looked, and so Lot says, I'm going to go down to the Jordan Valley because it was lush. Um, It was um, uh, full of great things. Let's see. Uh, So let's not fight about it. Um, The words that he used was lush and watered like the garden of the Lord. That's what Lot saw when he looked down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, of course, he pitched his tent that way, and then he went further that way, and eventually he joined those cities. But those cities were great cities. 
They were wealthy cities. God had blessed those cities. But they were destroyed because they had gone so wicked. So what do these examples teach us? Israel was saved by God. The angels were worshipers of God. And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were blessed by God. And yet they were not able to remain in the love of God. God is desiring to bless you and me and pour out his love on us. Jude is exhorting us to earnestly contend for the faith. And that's why it's important for us to know the word. That's why it's so important for us to uh, expositionally teach the word so that you get the whole word. If you love the Lord, if you love Christ, the living word, you should be in love with the written word. Because the written word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we need to be in love with the word. And most of you are because I see you here every week. And so that's a great thing to be in love with the word. You, you get to the point to where you just can't get enough of it. False teachers, leaders came to turn the people away from the truth. In verse 8, we read about these false teachers again being dreamers. Uh, to be given over to the sexual images. They rejected authority of the apostles, of Paul. And they speak evil of dignitaries. I think that's so important for leaders in the church. To not speak about the dignitaries of the other church. Sometimes we leave one church and we go to another church. But those people that are leading that other church are dignitaries of the Lord. And we really shouldn't talk about them. We all have different places. We find different places where we fit into the body of Christ. But we should be above that if we're in leadership in the church to be able to do that. Listen to what it says. Likewise, also these streamers in the flesh, they reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. We must be careful not to do that. And then he gives an example with Michael and the, Michael the archangel and contending with the devil. When he disputed about the body of Moses, he dared not bring an accusation against him personally. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He knew when to use the Lord's name. And I think we should know when to do that. There is a time for us to say, this is bigger than me. And so I'm turning it over to you, Lord. And in the name of Jesus, we do this or we do that. I think there's power in the name of Jesus. I think sometimes just saying the name quietly to yourself can really calm your soul or your spirit. I think if you're in a spiritual battle and you're praying through something, I think repeating his name and just hearing the name of Jesus is a strengthening factor. I think it's, it's uh, something that's good for us to do. Um, I don't think there's a formula with that. I just think it's something that's good to do. But even Michael the archangel knew his place. Satan was a dignitary. He was a high order of angel that was created by God. He was an ungodly one. But he was created by God and he had a position. So Michael knew, I'm going to leave this one over to the Lord. But he also knew that this was not a physical fight. This was not a tug of war for Moses' body. This was a legal battle. The word for disputed there is to debate, to argue, to discuss like you would in a court of law. Who won the verdict in that battle? Did Michael win or did Lucifer win? Did Satan win? 
we know that Michael won because we saw Moses on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. We also know Moses is going to be one of the witnesses in the book of Revelation. So we know that he is taken care of. Verse 10, he starts to talk more about these false teachers. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beast, in these things they corrupt themselves. Speaking evil about things they don't even know about. Spiritual things. Um, the grace and the agape love, they were trying to bring those down and talk about them. They were trying to bring everything into a natural realm into something that uh, would be just like animals or just how we would uh, um, uh, engage in, with each other just in things that we know physically, things that are there. These things are the false teachings were actually corrupting themselves. So the main idea of Jude is to defend the faith against false teachers. Being saved like Israel was from Egypt, worshiping God like Satan and the angels, before the rebellion, even being blessed like Sodom and Gomorrah were, does not ensure God's continued blessing. We must contend, contend for the faith. We must stay in the faith. In verse 11, he says, Woe to them, woe to the false teachers, for they have gone in the way of Cain, run greedily in the heirs of Balaam, for profit and perish in the rebellion of Korah. Again, three examples from the Old Testament. Jude seemed to know his Bible pretty well. He was quoting stories and talking about people from the Septuagint or the Old Testament Bible that they had at the time that was there for them to, to know about. So they knew about it. The New Testament wasn't written yet. It wasn't in any form that it could be there so they could refer to it. So we need to know our scriptures. We need to know about these people, the way of Cain. Back in Genesis 4, you know the story where Cain killed his brother because that one uh, offering was accepted and the other wasn't. Cain actually appeared before God without the proper offering. He brought a grain offering. Abel came with the firstborn of his flock. And it says there that the way of Cain is the way of man's religion. God had instructed Adam and Eve, when he covered them with skins or tunics of skin, God prescribed that blood must be shed to cover their sins. That was God's plan. And eventually we know that nothing but the blood of Jesus can cover our sins. But there was a system put in place. Abel did it. Cain didn't. Cain became jealous. And we have the first murder that was recorded. But nothing can wash away our sins but, um, but the blood of Christ. And in 1 John, he talks about this as well. He talks about... Um, in chapter 3, he says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Obedience to the Lord is an important thing. It's important for us to do those things right. But false teachers were coming in and bringing in other ideas by adding something to God's grace. And that's one of the things that happens within the church a lot of times 
in those days, and we studied them as we looked at the different letters, especially of Paul, we talked about the Judaizers, those who came in the church and said, oh, yes, you can be Christians, but before being a Christian, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to know the law of Moses. We've got to keep the Sabbath. Can you imagine? The Jews might have said, you've got to keep the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. So now we have a whole weekend of, of Sabbath, whatever the Jews might have done. Then there were the Gnostics, those who were saying, you know, you guys have a good basic knowledge. Pastor Brandon and I have some special knowledge that when you're mature enough, we're going to share it with you. But if you hang in with us and, and just grow with us, I'm sure by the end of this year, maybe next year, we'll be able to bring you in to that super knowledge that we have. Um, that's a Gnosticism. Gnosticism was there was a special group. And there was a dividing. There was a, um, a uh, uh, respect of persons within Gnosticism. It was one of the things that was talked about there. So these, thir- these certain men that it talks about back there in uh, um, verse 4, these certain men, if they've crept in unnoticed, adding things to the grace of God. And that's what we have to be so careful of. You know, I've talked before about the fact that, you know, some people say, well, when you get into church, all of a sudden people start to talk to you and they want you to be sinless, you know, that you have no sin. No, that's not what it's about. Yes, we should sin less but we're not going to be sinless. We're never going to get to that place to where we don't um, mess up from time to time and say, oops. Um, The heir of Balaam. The account of Balaam is in Numbers 22 to 25. That's one of the most colorful stories in the Bible. We all love it because the donkey talks, but let's, let's remind ourselves of it. Israel had defeated the Amorites. And Balak, the king of Moab, and his people were afraid. So they went to Balaam, who was a prophet for hire, and they asked him to curse the house of Israel. And God would not allow it to do that. Matter of fact, every time he went to pray, he blessed the house of Israel, and they got more and more blessings upon him. So he gets on his donkey, and he takes off, and the donkey starts to turn off the road and go into a field. And um, Balaam struck him, and, and he turned back, and then pretty soon he pushed him up against the wall and he struck him again. And then the third time, he, the donkey just laid down underneath him. And, he, and, ba- and Balaam just said, what in the world's going on? And then it says, the Lord caused the donkey to speak. What have I done to you? Balaam said, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. Can you imagine talking to a donkey? You know, the donkey talks, if I had a sword, man, I'd kill you. Haven't I been a good donkey? Have I ever done these things before? And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord. The donkey was trying to prevent him from running into the direct contact with the angel of the Lord. Balak tried over and over to get him to curse Israel. But God continued to have Balaam bless Israel. What is the heir of Balaam? The heir of Balaam is to be a prophet for hire. In Second Peter Two fifteen and 16, it refers to this, what we call the false warning of false teachers in, Rome, in, Peter, in 2 Peter 2.15. We read, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. They following the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restraining the madness of the prophet. 
The prophet had gone mad because he was out for hire. And that is one of the worst things that happens sometimes in the church is when people come in and they're doing it for the job. They're doing it for the position and for the money. And that is something that just just should never be. You need to make sure that you know your pastors and you see them serving you, not for gain and not for greed. It's an important thing. So he called it the way of Balaam. Jude Jude calls it the error of Balaam. But in Revelation, Jesus calls it the doctrine of Balaam. And so this thing that was just a way became an error or a, a, a methodology, and then it actually became a doctrine. And so we need to watch that. And that's being a prophet for hire. And then the third example he uses is the rebellion of Korah. Korah and his followers rebel against Moses. It's in Numbers chapter 16. Now, again, you probably know the story. They tried to take over from Moses, God's chosen leader. Moses said, let's, Lord, let's let the Lord choose. And later, you know the story, the ground opens up and swallows up to 250 of them. False teachers do the same today, promoting themselves and overriding the authority of God's servants. You know, so often um, church splits happen because of those types of things where a church body will get concerned over uh, some issue within the church and sometimes personalities get in play. And the next thing you know is there's two churches. That can be a good thing. You know, Paul and Silas split and that was a good thing. Um, um, Calvary Chapel and Vineyard split. That was a good thing. I mean, look, the Vineyard was a great movement. There's times when it can be a great thing. There's other times, though, when it's just out-and-out rebellion. And that's where you always need to respect those who've been put into authority for that time. So he gave us a warning of these three dangers to look for as we look uh, at the people who are coming into the church uh, and will keep us from, en- from enjoying and continuing in the love of God. The anger of Cain. You don't want to have leaders in the church that are angry or out of step with the Lord. The greed of Balaam and the envy of Korah. So Jude has described these teachers in vivid terms so far. In verse 4, he called them ungodly, lewd, or lustful deniers of God. In verse 7, he says they're like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're given over to immorality. In verse 8, he calls them dreamers and defilers of the flesh. And in verse 10, he said they even corrupt themselves. And now he goes on in verses 12 and 13 using some really excellent word pictures. These, there are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds. Remember, he's talking about the false teachers. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up to their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the the blackness of darkness forever. Using word pictures, Jew says of them, hidden reefs in the ocean, and they only serve themselves, clouds without rains. Let me read it to you from the New Living Testament. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs. They can shipwreck you. 
They are like shameless shepherds who can who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wind waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to the blackness and darkness. They only serve themselves. The rain causes no growth and they don't bear fruit. That's where we'll pick it up next week as we continue in our study in Jude.